Hello and welcome to the Sustainability Leaders Series. I'm Oriel Morrison. Reaching net zero is not just a government or business responsibility. It's a joint initiative and comes with a hefty price tag of up to $150 trillion. On the corporate side, an unprecedented level of stakeholder pressure is finally having the intended result, with at least one-fifth of the world's largest public companies committing to net zero targets. Gartner's global survey shows that environmental sustainability has become a top 10 business priority for the first time ever. There is a strong push from investors to better understand the risks that ESG and sustainability pose within the assets in which they invest in, and that's completely changed the mindset of businesses and how they respond. So I would say the investor push is as strong as any, and that's been what's changed the most in the last couple of years. Apple has set a goal to be carbon neutral by 2030. Nestle committing to 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2025. And other retailers like IKEA, Woolworths and Nike focused on reducing waste across their supply chains, adopting renewable energy and transitioning to recycled or sustainable materials and packaging. I don't want to underestimate also the fact that we are seeing the impacts of climate change. So if we think about floods in Queensland and New South Wales, we think about um, uh, heat waves in, in the UK, we think about bushfires on the, uh, the west coast of the US. These things are having profound impacts and they're very visible to the community. And the previously being able to disconnect um, those events from climate change is, is disappearing. And so that's becoming more overt and that's changing generally society and consumers' mindsets around this topic. The financial services sector also under pressure to do more. COP26 highlighting the impact of the climate crisis on global economies and how banks will play a critical role in the path towards a zero carbon future. Southeast Asia's largest bank, DBS, has achieved more than 50 sustainability and purpose-driven awards. I'm joined now by Yolanda Chung, Head of Sustainability at DBS. Yolanda is also on the board of Transition Zero, a climate analytics firm. Yolanda, wonderful to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> now, what are the responsibilities of the financial services industry when it comes to the transition to net zero? Well, we are providers and facilitators of capital in terms of allocating capital to the places that we can promote sustainable development and also facilitating the corporate development. In a way, capital does follow. So just because you have a pool of capital doesn't mean that there is certainly the emergence of a pool of bankable projects. So I think both need to work hand in hand. Financial institutions like DBS have a responsibility to ensure that we have certain sector standards in place, who we bank, who we don't bank, under what conditions we bank. And very often these days, we look at climate change as one of the screening criteria. Now from the DBS side, Yolanda, you set 2022 as a target year to achieve net zero. This is a hugely ambitious task. How is it going? What well, 2022, our net zero target is for our operational emissions covering scope one, scope two and also scope three because some of the emissions coming out of the data centers that we make use of. But 
our bigger ambition is to get to net zero for our finance emissions, which also under, falls under scope three. What we mean by that is the emissions arising from our clients' corporate operations will get attributed to DBS. And in order for DBS to get to net zero, our clients need to get to net zero. It is not just about banks shuffling their portfolios around. If DBS can claim to be clean because I have divested all my capital financing towards carbon intensive industries, that doesn't make the world a better place. What we try to do is to engage with our clients to identify mitigating measures to abate those emissions so that we can transition with them, providing the capex and the capital required for them to transition. Yolanda, what about hurdles? What sort of hurdles are you facing on this journey? Well, many of the hurdles have been widely talked about, such as data quality, data availability. But I think a lesser known challenge that we face is comparability. How do we ensure when different banks, insurance companies, asset managers, asset owners came out with their own net zero paths? How do we know who is doing better? It's not just about doing better against ourselves from five years ago. It is also important to know how we compare against our peers. And in order to get to comparability, we need to use a standardized reduction pathway, meaning that between now and 2030, the interim target, and eventually to get to 2050, how do we know the pace of reduction should be done in a way so that we benchmark all of us against the same glide path? Yolanda, you talked about financing a little bit earlier and, and capital flows, but what about sustainable financing deals? How much more prevalent are they today? Our approach now is that most of our facilities can have a sustainability dimension to it. We can structure it as a green loan or green bond, meaning that the entirety of the funds raised and borrowed should go to earmark green projects and assets. Or it could be structured as a sustainability link instrument, meaning that we set targets in place for our borrowers or the companies that we are helping to raise money in the capital markets and there is the interest rate or the coupon payment tagged to the achievement or targets or not. As a result, majority of our financing can have a sustainability dimension. We have heard a lot about greenwashing accusations. I think the trend for the rise of sustainable finance is not just the volume. We need to see improvement in quality. We need to ensure that we are banking something that is truly green rather than something that is already done, but you put on a different label. How important is technology here and how are you leveraging the emerging technologies in your sustainability journey? Technology is hugely important. In digital banking, it helps to lower the transaction costs so that we can do more inclusive banking, going to bank the unbank at a cost that previously would not be of commercial value to many of the banks tech solutions are also useful because we know that there are now many solutions in the market that allow us to track almost real time what is the rate of deforestation what is the rate of emissions for different pollution what is the rate of methane emissions satellite technology can help i think the real-time monitoring of environmental data and very soon social data would help us ensure capital going to the right place and going to areas that need improvement. 
Yolanda, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Today's innovators are focused on starting businesses with a deeply embedded commitment to sustainability. I'm joined now by Sinque Tong, Executive Director of Investments for the Singapore government-owned SG Innovate. Welcome. It's so good to have you with us today. Now, SG Innovate builds and invests in deep tech startups. What exactly does that mean? Okay, so that's a very interesting question <laughs> and different people have got different ways of looking at what deep tech means to them. I think uh, perhaps a better way of describing it is that we look at emerging technologies, um, especially technologies that might impact the global economy and especially the economy that you know, of Singapore itself. So, so when you're looking for new ideas, how much time is spent on the sustainability side of the equation? Well, I think if you sort of draw all the lines in today's emerging tech, you could probably connect everything over this broad categorization that we call sustainability. Everything from, you know, uh, you know even mRNA vaccines, you know, the biotech space to advanced manufacturing to agri-food, you know, there are connections all the way towards sustainability because everyone's looking to, you know, the, the three R's, you know, reduce, recycle, uh, you know, uh, you know, reduce uh, and reuse. Um, so I think it's not something that we, we actively focus upon uh, specifically. Everything sort of draws towards that. I think in the area of sustainability, we are very much, uh, when we look at it uh, specifically, we are very much uh, interested in areas like the energy uh, side of the equation, um, the grid, the grid of today, uh, the grid of tomorrow, um, and of course, decarbonization. So, um, you know, those are the areas where we see emerging technologies being able to play a big role. Now, now, you just went through some of the sectors that, that you're in, and you are in just about every sector from agriculture right through to quantum computing. Take us through some of the really exciting companies that you're working with at the moment. Wow, I think uh, there's just really too many to list. We have about 90 companies in our portfolio. Um, as you quite rightly mentioned, we view quantum technologies and uh, uh, semiconductors as being pivotal to the future of uh, our economy, to the future of uh, sustainability as well. You know, we have investments in companies like Horizon Quantum Computing. They are building uh, compilers that will enable people like me to be able to program a quantum computer without having to learn and understand too much about quantum computing itself, uh, making it more accessible to laymen. They're building compilers that will allow you to build, you know, to, uh, to convert your existing programs into uh, quantum efficient coding. Uh, and I think that's going to go quite some way into uh, adopting, uh, you know, for people to look into adopting uh, quantum technology. Uh, we have investments also in the sustainability space, you know, like SunGreen H2, which is in the hydrogen electrolyzer space. Uh, and what we like about what they do is not just the fact that they're in the hydrogen electrolyzer space, there are many companies that do that, uh, but that they don't use too many of the rare earth materials and the, uh, and the expensive and rare uh, metals to build the electrolyzers, which will probably make it uh, more sustainable in the long term. It's incredibly exciting, isn't it? All the innovation that, that's happening uh, right now. Now, what are some of the obstacles that companies in this space, in, in all of the sectors that you've just been describing, but when it comes to the focus on sustainability, what are some of the obstacles they have to deal with? And, and I think, uh, you know, those obstacles uh, pretty much permeate everything, uh, you know, that's uh, coming out from emerging technologies. The first, of course, is the regulatory hurdle. 
um, you know, you've got to make sure that the regulators are educated alongside uh, the technology. Otherwise, you know, the, the default position for regulators is likely to be just, you know, if it isn't broken, why fix it? Um, and especially in sustainability, regulators play a big role because they can actually make or break the sector by imposing limitations on uh, carbon emissions, which sort of force corporates to, to rethink how they sell and do things. Absolutely. Uh, Sinhui, we really do appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for chatting to us. My pleasure. Thank you. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Sustainability Leaders Series. I'm Oriel Morrison. For more in this special 12-part series, head to apacnetwork.com.